Father God, thank you um, for your word, uh, your precious word. Thank you that it's the way you reveal yourself, um, uh, who you are, and um, your great uh, unfolding plan of salvation and renewal uh, for your universe and for us who have turned away from you and rejected your, your kind rule. Um, we pray that today you would, as we hear Isaiah um, 28 read and then preached, please soften our hearts uh, to hear your word, hear it deeply, um, not just with our heads and our, our, our minds, but um, we pray that we would take in what you have for us deeply and that you would transform us at the deepest level for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Reading from Isaiah 28. Woe to that wreath the pride of Ephraim's drunkards, to the fading flower, his glorious beauty, set on the head of a fertile valley, to that city, the pride of those laid low by wine. See, the Lord has one who is powerful and strong, like a hailstorm and a destructive wind, like a driving rain and a flooding downpour, he will throw it forcefully to the ground. That wreath, the pride of Ephraim's drunkards, will be trampled underfoot. That fading flower, his glorious beauty, set on the head of a fertile valley, will be like figs ripe before the harvest. As soon as people see them and take them in hand, they swallow them. In that day, the Lord Almighty will be a glorious crown, a beautiful wreath for the remnant of his people. He will be a spirit of justice to the one who sits in judgment, a source of strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. And these also stagger from wine and reel from beer. Priests and prophets stagger from beer and are befuddled with wine. They reel from beer. They stagger when seeing visions. They stumble when rendering decisions. All the tables are covered with vomit and there is not a spot without filth. Who is, who is it he is trying to teach? To whom is he explaining his message? To children weaned from their milk? To those just taken from the breast? For it is, do this, do that, a rule for this, a rule for that, a little here and a little there. Very well then, with foreign lips and strange tongues, God will speak to his peop this people, to whom he said, this is the resting place, let the weary rest, and this is the place of repose, but they would not listen. So then the word of the Lord to them will become, do this, do that, a rule for this, a rule for that a little here, a little there, so that as they go, they will fall backward, they will be injured and snared and captured. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem. You boast, we have entered into a covenant with death, with the realm of de the dead we have made an agreement. When an overwhelming scourge sweeps by, it cannot touch us, for we have made a lie our refuge and falsehood our hiding place. So this is what the Sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. Hail will sweep away your refuge, the lie, and water will overflow your hiding place. Your covenant with death will be annulled. Your agreement with the realm of the dead will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge sweeps by, you will be beaten down by it. 
As often as it comes, it will carry you away. Morning after morning, by day and by night, it will sweep through. The understanding of this message will bring sheer terror. The bed is too short to stretch out on, the blanket too narrow to wrap around you. The Lord will rise up as he did at Mount Perizim. He will rouse himself as in the valley of Gibeon. To do his work, his strange work, and perform his task, his alien task. Now stop your mocking, or your chains will become heavier. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, has told me of the destruction decreed against the whole land. Listen and hear my voice. Pay attention and hear what I say. When a farmer ploughs for planting, does he plough continually? Does he keep on breaking up and working the soil? When he has levelled the surface, does he not sow caraway and scatter cumin? Does he not plant wheat in its place, barley in its plot and spelt in its fields? His God instructs him and teaches him the right way. Caraway is not threshed with a sledge, nor is the wheel of a cart rolled over cumin. Caraway is beaten out with a rod and cumin with a stick. Grain must be ground to make bread, so one does not go on threshing it forever. The wheels of a threshing cart may be rolled over it, but one does not use horses to grind grain. All this also comes from the Lord Almighty, whose plan is wonderful, whose wisdom is magnificent. Um, for reading that for us and what a passage we have before us. Uh, we are in this book of Isaiah, an ancient prophecy, uh, but uh, we need to pray and ask God to help open our hearts and our minds so that we might hear what he has to say for us uh, because the message of this passage and the message of Isaiah, uh, every word of it is for our good. Uh, so I'm going to just pray again uh, and uh, ask that God will help us now. Oh God, please open our hearts and minds to hear your word and to receive it and to put it into practice. Please, we ask in your mercy that you might show us those areas, those things in our lives, those things that we are relying on, we are looking to for security and significance uh, that are not you uh, and that will fade away and that will be washed away. Uh, please help us to see those and to turn to you and to find our security and our peace and our joy in you and you alone, uh, because you are the solid rock, the cornerstone, the sure foundation. Um, please do that in each of our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, uh, the family and I went on holidays last week. We weren't here last um, Sunday. Uh, we went over to Port Macquarie over in New South Wales, and uh, if you've been up with the news, you'll know that floods have swept through Port Macquarie in recent weeks and a lot of the rest of the east coast of, um, of uh, New South Wales. And it was really sobering to drive through and see as, as you kind of, there's a, there's a picture there of a flood, it's not Port Macquarie, but it's a flood. Um, it's really sobering as you drive through the town. Uh, what, noted, what really stood out to me was as we were driving around, there were these big, huge piles of furniture and appliances that had just been ruined by this flood outside all of these homes around the town. It was really, you know, it was pretty sobering and scary. There's recent uh, massive flood that swept through. It had this devastating effect in, in it, and a flood is this unstoppable force, right? Well, according to Isaiah, <laughs> there is a flood coming on God's Old Testament people, Israel. Uh, it's not, not talking about a literal flood. He's talking about the looming international threat of a country called Assyria, uh, the Assyrian Empire. 
Uh, now we're in a new section in Isaiah, starting this chapter, chapter 28, through to chapter 30, uh, 35, uh, is this new section. Uh, it's all held together, and, but I just wanted to give a bit of an orientation. It's helpful for us to see where we're sitting and what's going on. Uh, so if you're with us last year when we started this book of Isaiah, back in chapter 7, uh, it was set in, we saw it was set in this particular time in Israel's history, the history of the people of God in the Old Testament. Uh, the, the nation of Israel had been torn in two by a civil war, so you had a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, uh, Israel in the north, Judah in the south, uh, and at this point, when, when we looked last year at chapter 7, you, you should see up there a bit of a map. At, at this point, the northern kingdom was ganging up with another country, Aram, whose king was Rezin. And if you remember, I didn't have a photo of Rezin, but that'll help you to remember his name at least. Uh, the, so the northern kingdom was ganging up with Rezin and Aram at the, uh, uh, against the southern kingdom in the face of this growing threat of Assyria. Uh, maybe that's ringing some bells from those earlier chapters of Isaiah. Well, things have changed at this point in chapter 28. Things have, uh, have changed. Uh, there's a new king in Assyria. It's this guy called Sennacherib. Sennacherib. Uh, now, uh, uh, time has passed since that last sort of thing we were looking at, the last period. Uh, Sennacherib's father, his name was a guy, he, uh, he was a guy called Sargon, They've got great names. So any prospective parents looking for names, keep these in mind. Uh, Sargon had already conquered the northern, kingdom, uh, the northern kingdom and taken them into exile in 722 BC. So that's a key date if you want to lock away a date in the Old Testament history, 722. Uh, Sennacherib's father had already taken away the northern kingdom. So uh, that's all going on. Uh, at this time when Isaiah's writing. But there's another player in these chapters, is a major kind of player in these chapters, and another international player, uh, and that's the nation of Israel on the other side. So if we can go through the next few slides. Oh, sorry, yeah, there's, there's Sennacherib. Uh, and you'll see there that, yeah, he's been... Uh, the northern uh, Kingdom of Israel has already been taken away, but if you go to the next slide, you'll see there's a, the nation of Egypt on the other side. Um, so these chapters of Isaiah were probably written about this time, um, when the Northern Kingdom has already been taken away, you've got Assyria, Sennacherib, the threat there, and you've got Egypt on the other side. Sennacherib's breathing down their neck. He hasn't, he hasn't quite conquered Judah yet, the Southern Kingdom, uh, but he's been making them pay tribute to him. Um, and one of the big issues that's underlying these chapters that we're looking at uh, is that in the face of this threat, if you go to the next slide, in the face of this threat from Sennacherib and Assyria, one of the big issues is where is Judah going to turn? Where is Judah going to turn? And their big temptation is that the, to turn to Egypt. Uh, for protection, to turn to Egypt for protection from this flood that's coming. Their big temptation is that they attempted to turn to Egypt instead of turning to God to save them. We're going to get into more details as the weeks go on, and we'll see them come out in these chapters. Uh, but what Isaiah does here uh, is he paints this graphic picture of the cause of uh, of this Assyrian flood and the devastating effects of this Assyrian flood. Uh, 
And he points us to the only place of safety and hope and life. It was a really urgent message for the southern kingdom of Judah to hear. Uh, And it's actually a really urgent message for us to hear today. Uh, In the light of the gospel of Jesus, it becomes a wonderful and important message. Okay, so that's kind of a bit of an orientation to how things are going. Uh, uh, So into the passage that we've got before us, if you've got a Bible open, that'll be helpful. The passage will come up on the screen as well as we go through. Um, The first half of our passage, the first 13 verses... It's a, gets a little bit to get your head around, but the first 13 verses are actually, they're a record of a message spoken to the northern kingdom, that northern kingdom, um, before they fell, before Sargon had taken them away. Uh, the whole north is referred to here by one of their tribes, Ephraim. So uh, again, that gets a bit, little bit to get your head around, but when he says Ephraim, that's talking about that whole northern kingdom. Uh, what I was saying here is, here's what God has already said to Ephraim in the north, Remember, Isaiah's talking to Judah in the south, but he's saying, here's what God has already said to Ephraim in the north. See, look at what's happened to them. And then we'll see in verse 14, he then switches to talk to Judah, to the people he's actually preaching to. Okay, but he uses this image of a wreath. So there should be a picture of a wreath coming up in verse 1. This um, decorative head covering. Uh, it's a symbol of, uh, a wreath is something that you take, uh, something, um, you take pride in, something that kind of makes you feel special and important. Uh, and for Ephraim in the north, yeah, it's a bit weird. You don't think that that would make you feel special and important, but that's the kind of Im- imagery. Uh, for Ephraim in the north, though, this wreath, this thing that they, they, this, they took pride in and presented themselves to the world, uh, for the people of, in the north and Ephraim, this wreath was their capital city. A great and beautiful city called Samaria. It was a prosperous city and the people had real pride in their city. And they had this confidence that because they lived in such a great place, a great city, nothing bad would happen to them. Um, But it was a misplaced confidence. We'll get to the text now uh, in verse 1. Woe to that wreath the pride of Ephraim's drunkards, to the fading flower, his glorious beauty, set on the head of a fertile valley. To that city, the pride of those laid low by wine. See, the Lord has one who is powerful and strong, like a hailstorm like a, and a destructive wind, like a driving rain and a flooding downpour. He will throw it to the, forcefully to the ground. That wreath, the pride of Ephraim's drunkards, will be trampled underfoot. So you get this picture, while Ephraim's, the people of Ephraim are distracting themselves with wine and parties in this beautiful city this, that they're taking pride in, they don't see the flood that's going to come and uh, trample their wreath underfoot. Um, and it's not just the, the people either. It's not just the people uh, in general. Um, from verse 7, it's the leaders too. Uh, it's the priests and the prophets. They stagger from beer and the befuddled with wine. They're joining in this thoughtless distraction and you know, um, oblivious to the flood that's coming. And there's this cynical dismissiveness to God and his word. You get that in verse 9. Uh, these leaders of the people, they mock God's message to them that was given to, through the prophet. Verse 9 Who is it he's trying to teach, 
To whom is he explaining his message? To children weaned from their milk? To those just taken from the breast? Uh, as in, he's just talking baby talk. It's do this, do that, a rule for this, a rule for that, little here, a little there. There's a real mockery behind it. It's a bit hard to show those, those words, do this, do that, rule for this, rule, rule for that. Uh, they're a bit hard to translate. You might have a footnote in your Bible. Uh, some, some of you might be able to see a footnote there that says, um, they're probably just meaningless sounds that are mocking, mimicking the prophet's words. They're kind of baby talk. So these people are hearing the prophet and they're going, oh, goo goo ga ga. Here goes the preacher again, always going on about turning back to God. It's all just meaningless babble. Their hearts are hard to God and to his word. Um, and do you see, uh, maybe you saw this as, you, as we read through, or you can see it there down in verse 12 though. God's word to them had actually been a word of life and peace. God's word to, had, to them had been, this is the resting place. Let the weary rest. This is the place of repose. So God's message for them to turn back to him, to repent, it wasn't some kind of mean-spirited thing. It was a gracious call to come back to the, to the one true source of rest and peace and life. See, see what's going on here? It's not that God hadn't spoken clearly to them. He had. It was that they, in their hardness of heart, had refused to listen to what he was saying. And so God says, uh, back up in verse 11, he says, Well, very well then. You think my word through the prophets is just meaningless babble? Well, I'll now speak to you through a people whose speech actually will be meaningless babble to you. A foreign nation who you won't understand their talk. With foreign lips and strange tongues, God will speak to this people. And you, so th th this foreign nation would come, this nation of Assyria... Uh, and at the end of verse 13, Ephraim, the northern kingdom, is left injured and snared and captured. And that's exactly what happens. It's exactly what happens. It's sobering. So, Isaiah uses this example of God's message to Ephraim in the north. He uses it as a warning to the people he's talking to in the south. But did you notice I skipped over a bit? Uh, maybe if you've got, it's a long passage, so it's sort of hard to keep everything in mind, but I did skip over a little bit. Did you notice that on the way through, God presents this stunning alternative offer, this alternative vision, a different wreath, uh, a far better crown? It, so it, it talks about not the, this fading wreath of human accomplishment, He talks about the crown of knowing and trusting in the Lord Almighty. Down in verse 5. In that day, the Lord Almighty will be a glorious crown, a beautiful wreath for the remnant of his people. He will be the spirit of justice to the one who sits in judgment, a source of strength to those who turn back the battle at the gates. See, friends, the tragedy of Ephraim's story is that when the battle came to their gates... They didn't have the Lord Almighty as their source of strength. Uh, they ran after the fading and temporary wreath of the pride that they had in their human accomplishments in their city. 
when what God had offered them was a glorious and eternal crown. They trusted in their achievement in their cities, dulled by their drunken pride, rather than humbly receiving God's word to them and trusting in him. And what Isaiah sees, as he's speaking to these people in the south, to the, to the people down in Judah, he, he sees the same danger that they are under. And so in verse 14, as you read on, he says, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule in Jerusalem. And then he goes on in verse 15 to talk about this covenant with death that they boast in. They've made an agreement. He's probably talking about an alliance that Judah has made or is going to make or wants to make with Egypt, the other country, this alliance that you know, they think will protect them from Assyria. He's probably talking about that. Um, like, just like Ephraim trusted in their city rather than in God, Judah is, is trusting in this, this, uh, this agreement, this alliance, this covenant which Isaiah calls a covenant with death. They're, they're putting all their hopes in it. They think that with Egypt on their side, death can't touch them. But just like with Ephraim, Judah says it's a misplaced confidence. It's not going to save them from this coming flood. Down in verse 17, Hail will sweep away your refuge. The lie and water will overflow your hiding place. Your covenant with death will be annulled. Your agreement with the realm of the dead will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge sweeps by, you will be beaten down by it. So it's a similar kind of sobering message for Judah that Isaiah has. But also, just like with Ephraim in the north, Isaiah gives us this stunning alternative. He doesn't just give us this message of... Uh, a coming flood. He gives us hope and an alternative. Verse 16, so this is what the Sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. See, Judah has this confidence in this covenant with death whatever that is, possibly this alliance with Egypt. They have this confidence in that. But it's not a solid foundation. It's not going to hold them when this flood comes. But Isaiah is saying, here is the true foundation, the sure foundation that is holding out to them. See, all the way through Isaiah's prophecy, God promises to do something incredible in Jerusalem, in Zion, something that would establish his kingdom forever. And here Isaiah is saying that this thing that God's going to do, it'll be a solid rock, something that you can completely rely on, something that will shield you in the flood, something that will give you true and lasting peace. It'll be a precious cornerstone, that kind of key piece of the building uh, that everything else builds around, a sure foundation in contrast to the false securities God's people were always running to. Okay, so we've got this trampled wreath versus the glorious crown that God, that God offers. We've got this false boast versus the sure cornerstone. 
Uh, Isaiah, this chapter finishes off with another contrast. And there's something really significant here for us, really important. Um, did, you might have picked it up all the way through as we've read through. This coming flood that Isaiah talks about, it's not just a random event. It's not just another kind of, um, it's not just a, another egotistical empire expanding its borders. <laughs> um, this flood is actually, uh, in some profound way, sent by God himself. Uh, it is a judgment of God on his people. There's been lots of talk about judgment in Isaiah so far. Uh, if you've been with us, maybe you've picked that up. I'm sure you have. Um, the whole first half of the book is dominated by it before this amazing and beautiful switch uh, to comfort in the second half, which we will get, we will get to. Um, but we have thought a lot about judgment in these first chapters of Isaiah, and it can be difficult to hear. I know some of us have struggled to, with that, but we need to hear it. We need to be careful that we don't just dismiss it as babble um, and put ourselves in the position of Ephraim's priests who were hardened to God's word. See, the world in rebellion against God sits under his good and righteous judgment. Um, Isaiah has shown us that God's even now in this what one of the stunning things that Isaiah is focusing on is that even God's people are swept up in that judgment. But it's it's really it's so important. So that's true and we need to hear that. But it's so important that we hear verse 21 as well of this chapter. What Isaiah says. Because while the judgment of God is it's real, it's urgent, it's not as if God is sort of hanging out for it. It's not as if God is eager for it. Um, there's this comic, I didn't put it up because of copyright reasons, I wasn't sure about that, but it's a, it's a famous comic. Anyone um, familiar with the Far Side comics? Anyone know the Far Side comics? A guy called Gary Larson. There's this classic um, comic that he drew with God's looking at a computer. There's God's up there in the sky. He's looking at his computer. And on his computer screen, he sees this guy walking along the street with a piano hanging over him. Uh, and his finger, God's finger is hovering over the keyboard, hovering over the smite button. So you get this image of God just kind of hovering, waiting to smite this guy. While, you know, not, it's not everyone's sort of sense of humour. kind of tickles my funny bone. Um, but, but that's not what God is like. He doesn't have his finger hovering over the smite button. Uh, the Lord is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And his heart is to bless and not to curse. That's been his great plan from the beginning, to bring his blessing to the world. God's judgment in Isaiah is something that by this time in Israel's history, he's been holding off on again and again and again. And it's been brought about because of the persistent and unchanging stubborn pride and sin of his people. So Isaiah says in verse 21 and verse 22 that the Lord will rise up. That this coming flood will be his work, his will. That judgment is coming against these proud mockers who refuse him and his word. But do you see what it says? This judgment is his strange work. His alien task. 
His strange... In other words, it's, it's not his main game. It's not the thing he's ultimately moving things towards. He is working out his purpose, his plan. And even the rebellion of his world can't stop it. Even the wickedness and sin of his own people can't stop it. You see how this chapter finishes down in verse 29. It's a wonderful plan. It is magnificent wisdom. There's one more thing in this chapter. Uh, in between those, that, where Isaiah talks about the strange plan and the, uh, the strange work and the wonderful plan, he uses this picture of a farmer to illustrate it. Uh, there's, a, there's a fair bit in there, but basically I think what's going on is that he's saying, he talks about this farmer ploughing his field. And he says, a farmer doesn't just plough and plough and plough and plough and just keep ploughing and that's it. Right? Yeah, there's no purpose in doing that. Uh, the purpose of ploughing, which involves a kind of destruction, right? But the purpose is creating something new. It's, the purpose of it is to sow the seed, and he talks about the grinding of grain that leads to the making of bread. So there's these pictures of this destruction, but a destruction that leads to something new and good and beautiful. And as I was saying, it's like that with God's judgment. It is a kind of ploughing, a kind of grinding of the grain, but it is his strange work. And what he ultimately is on about and wants to do is to sow uh, is to bake. <laughs> um, what, as such is God's sovereign grace that even out of the destruction of his judgment, he will bring good, he'll bring life and something wonderful. Well, it is a great mystery how he can do that. It's a mystery that Isaiah starts to unveil through his prophecy and will see unveiled for us through as we read through Isaiah. But it's a mystery that's fully made clear to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as you, as you read through and you see Israel's history, God's strange work does fall on the southern kingdom of Judah. We'll see through Isaiah, they, they get a bit of a reprieve through a godly king, um, but it doesn't last long, and eventually they do get conquered and exiled, not by Assyria, but by a different new empire called Babylon, which we'll get to later. So there is a kind of fulfilment of this that we see there, but its ultimate fulfilment of this chapter is in Jesus. Is in Jesus. That's where this strange work and this wonderful plan come together perfectly, incredibly, wonderfully. At the cross, Jesus bears in himself the terrible floodwaters of the righteous judgment of God on his people. And he faces the ultimate enemy, not Assyria or Babylon, the ultimate enemy of sin and the devil and even death itself. To change our imagery a little bit, uh, just like a seed gets ploughed into the ground and then rises to new life, so it, so it is with Jesus. Jesus rises as the first fruits of a new creation. Maybe i change the image again. He rises as... The cornerstone, the solid rock, the one you can rely on, the resting place for the weary, 
the lasting and glorious crown that will never fade. See, friends, in the place of this flood of God's judgment, Jesus brings a flood of God's grace for those who would trust in him and rely on him. And so uh, as we finish, this chapter opens up a question for us. It's a question that Isaiah comes back to again and again, and we're going to see it again and again in different ways. But it's just such an important question. And the question is this, what are you relying on? What are you relying on? What fading wreaths? Are you getting your sense of worth and importance from? Maybe for you it's like that city, that, uh, the, the pride in your achievements, the city that you're building with your life. Uh, maybe like Judah's leaders, it's a pride in your own opinions that may even lead you to, like them, scoff even at the word of God. See, as we reflect on this chapter... That's the question as I put to us. What are we relying on? And it's, we also need to remember that God's strange work is not yet finished. Uh, it isn't finished because his ultimate work of a new creation isn't yet finished. It's begun gloriously in Jesus. Uh, but there will come a day when what's begun in Jesus is made a reality everywhere where there will be a world of resurrection, life, free from sin and suffering and death, where righteousness and joy and peace dwells forever, where God will live with his people as their glorious crown. But before that great harvest, God still has his strange work of ploughing to do. There remains a coming judgment. And friends, those fading wreaths uh, that you're building your identity in will be exposed for what they are. It wouldn't surprise me if Jesus had this chapter in mind when he talked about um, the rock and the sandy soil that we looked at a few weeks ago. Um, what's sa- that sandy ground that we build on, it will give way in that flood. It can't support you. But Jesus can. Jesus can and he will if you come to him. He will be a sure foundation, a glorious crown on that day and every day. All this also comes from the Lord Almighty whose plan is wonderful and whose wisdom is magnificent. Come pray for us. Our God, we pray that you might do a work in our hearts to show us where we, what, what we are relying on. Uh, and by your Spirit, we ask that you might lead us to the rock that is higher than us, to that sure foundation, the glorious crown. Um, uh, Father, we pray that uh, uh, you might fill us with joyful thanks for what you have done in Jesus. What love, my God. What love. You have lavished on us in him uh, what flood of grace now pours down on our souls in Christ. Uh, Help us to see that and to know it and rejoice in it, we pray. And we pray that in his name. Amen.
Would you join me in prayer? Our Father, we thank you for your word to us today. Thank you that your word brings light and life. Thank you that you have sent Jesus to be our precious cornerstone. May we rely on him more and more. Thank you for your promise of security through him. We ask that your Holy Spirit may apply these words to our heart, whereby we are changed by them. Lord, we thank you that we can bring our cares to you now. We bring Trinity Church Hove to you and we give, give you thanks. Father, for the planned refurbishment of the space used for the kids' ministry and for the great relationship they have with their landlord. We pray for the series in May where they'll explore the implications of the resurrection for life in the now. Father, we also give thanks for Trinity Church Golden Grove and for all the guests who have recently visited and for your kindness in allowing many more to gather there. We pray for the people who have joined that they would find a sense of community and belonging and grow closer to Jesus. And for Trinity Church only, we give thanks for the high school youth group, especially we give thanks for the faithful leadership and for Peter and Kerry LaForest who oversee this ministry. We pray for their new kids ministry workers and for their willingness to be trained and equipped to serve. And we ask that you would be faith, they would be faithful teachers of the gospel. For the spread of the gospel, Father, we praise you. For the gifts of Christ, our ascended King. For apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers. Hear our prayer for all who do not know your love and have not heard the gospel of our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Send out your light and truth through the messages, messengers of your word, including our CMS missionaries, the Rose and the Davises, and bring many to saving trust in Christ. Help us to support them by our prayers and offerings and to commend the gospel ourselves by what we say and do. God our Father, we thank you for rescuing us from the dominion of darkness and bringing us into the kingdom of Jesus, the Son you love. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Hear our prayer for all who are far away from you, enemies in their minds because of their evil behaviour, that they might come to believe the hope held out in the gospel. Open doors for the gospel in every land and enable the messengers of your truth to proclaim it clearly as they should. Help us to be wise in the way we act toward outsiders and to make the most of every opportunity you give us. May our conversation be always full of grace and seasoned with salt, that we may know how to answer everyone. Heavenly Father, please look with compassion on the world you have redeemed by the death of your Son, Jesus Christ. Move the hearts of us, your people, to offer ourselves for gospel ministry. Fill us with your truth and clothe us with holiness, that by our lives and labours you, you, your light might shine through us and the coming of your kingdom be advanced. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please join me 